Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his almighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Brilliant. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning so that we might know you better. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you tend to respond uh, to a crisis. Uh, what do you do? Uh, for some, I think, is a bit of a keep calm and carry on. Others have been stockpiling uh, tinned food since March. Uh, what do you do in a crisis? Because lots of people, it seems, pray. When crisis hits, when people don't know what to do, prayer is the natural response. I read last week that since the start of coronavirus, Google has seen a massive increase in people searching for prayer. People pray in a crisis. Maybe that's because we don't know what else to do. Maybe it's because we sense this need for something bigger and stronger than ourselves. There are all sorts of reasons why people pray. And there are all sorts of questions as well. Uh, questions like, who do we pray to? Uh, what's the point in prayer? What should we pray for? What should we expect the answer to our prayers to be? People have lots of questions when it comes to prayer. And, and whether you're someone who prays or not, uh, this morning we've got the chance uh, to glimpse into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. If you are with us last week, you'll know that we've just begun this series in his letter to the Ephesians. And he began, didn't he, by explaining God's master plan for his world. The plan to unite all things together under Christ. And then he said, if we have faith in Christ, if we're in him, well then we have every spiritual blessing from God. It was a magnificent start to a letter, full of wonderful theological truth. And it's all that truth, all that theology that we see uh, in the next bit that leads Paul to pray. Uh, so just look at verse 15 with me. Uh, verse 15 uh, says this, 
For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul begins his letter by praising God for his master plan. Uh, And then he says, for this reason, because of all of that, I haven't stopped praying for you. Uh, His theology leads to thankfulness. Uh, But he doesn't stop there. He he carries on praying for them. Uh, And he prays uh, not just uh, that their granny's cat might get better or that the job interview will go well next week, as important as those things might be. No, Paul's prayers are much bigger and much bolder than that. He prays that that through the Spirit, God would help the Ephesians to know three big things, three important truths that will help them live in the light of God's master plan. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about those three things. And so first, Paul prays that they would know God better. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And here Paul says, well, that's absolutely right. Life is about much more than just knowing information, knowing stuff. It's about knowing people. We're made for relationships. I think that's one of the reasons why we're finding lockdown so difficult, because we're made to relate, to know each other. And the relationship that matters more than any other is our relationship with God. We're made to know him. In Paul's mind, there is, there's nothing bigger, nothing better, nothing more important than knowing God. Knowing the God who made us, the God who loves us and knows us better than we know ourselves. The Christian author Jim Packer puts it like this. He says, we're cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Knowing God is essential for life in this world, says Paul. I notice as well that he's not praying that we would know more about God, but that we would know God more. You see, one of the dangers, I think, is for us to think, well, the Christian life is just a case of knowing more information about this God. And so we read a few more books and listen to a few more podcasts and we'll we'll be fine. We'll be sorted. But whilst head knowledge and information are important parts of the Christian life, Paul isn't is praying for much more than that. He's praying that we would know God better, that we would relate to him, enjoy him, experience him, know him more each day. And again, we know that's true from other relationships, don't we? Uh, Relationships aren't meant to be static. They're meant to grow and develop, to to build and to deepen. 
that's how our relationships work. And, and that growth comes as we learn about other people, as we spend time talking with them, listening to them, sharing our lives with them. And the same is true when it comes to God. God doesn't save us and then say, OK, well, uh, see you on the other side. Uh, uh, we'll catch up when we get to heaven. No. no, he saves us into a relationship so that we can know him more and more each day. Uh, Tim Chester writes in his book, Enjoying God, the Christian life involves a living, felt experience of God. There's a real relating, a two-way relationship with giving and receiving, loving and being loved. And so Christianity is not just truths about God that we should believe or a lifestyle that we should adopt. It's a real two-way relationship, a relationship that we experience here and now. And it's that relationship that Paul prays in verse 17 that the Spirit would enable us to grow in. That as we listen to God in his word and we talk to him in prayer, as we spend time with him and with his people, we would know him better. And so that would be a great thing, wouldn't it, to be praying for each other at the moment. That as we're stuck at home, we would remember that our relationship with God is not on hold. And so we can pray. We can pray that the Spirit would help us and help each other to know God better each day. So that's the first thing that Paul prays for, that we would know God better. The second is that we, he prays we would know the hope God gives. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I can still remember the day that I realised I needed glasses. I remember it because it was the day of my driving test. As I walked out of the test centre, uh, the examiner stopped me and just asked me to, to read that number plate across the street. I paused and looked at him pretty confused, wondering how on earth he expected anyone to be able to read that fuzzy mess of numbers and letters, at which point he stopped me and said, perhaps I should take a trip to the opticians and then come back another day. I needed my eyesight fixing before I got anywhere near the wheel of a car. And Paul prays that the Ephesians' eyesight would be fixed, but he's not praying for their physical sight, he's praying for their spiritual sight. Just look at what he says again. He prays that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. He uses that funny phrase that, that Mike pointed out for us earlier on. The eyes of your heart. That's because in the Bible, the heart is more than just this organ that pumps blood around our body. The heart is the, the centre, the, the core of who we are as people. It's with our hearts that we think and feel, that we desire and do. And so when Paul prays that we would see with the eyes of our heart, he's praying for more than just an intellectual understanding. He's praying that we would see the reality of God's plan, that we would know it and that we would feel it, that we would desire it, that it would shape our lives. 
He prays that we would see things properly. And in particular, that we would see the hope that God gives us. Just look at verse 18 again. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. We all hope for things, don't we? I guess most of our hopes at the moment are tied up with COVID-19. And so we hope that we manage to avoid getting ill. We hope that our loved ones stay safe. We hope that maybe lockdown will be eased very soon. We hope that a vaccine will be discovered and that'll be the answer. All of us hope. But the problem is that so much of our hope is misplaced. So much of our hope is is tied up with the things of this world, with the life here and now. And so we hope for things like health and wealth and comfort. The things that Mike told us about for food and holidays and those sorts of things. All of our hope is tied up with those. And so when we get them, well, we're happy. But when we lose them or they're taken away from us, well, that's when we get upset or angry or or despair. But here Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that we would see the hope that we have in Christ. Because the Christian hope, that's a hope that extends far, far beyond the things of this world. The Christian hope is the hope that out of his amazing love and grace, God has called us into a relationship with himself, to know him, as we've just thought about. To know him today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. The Christian hope is a hope of a a glorious future where there is no such thing as coronavirus or any other illness. No such thing as separation or isolation. No such thing as death. The Christian hope is a certain hope. Because as we saw last week in verse 14, it's a hope that, that God is keeping as an inheritance for us. God himself. And so it's guaranteed. But it's more than just having an inheritance in the future. Did you see it? It's that we are an inheritance. Verse 18, Paul says that we, the church, are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you're a Christian, then you are part of God's inheritance. Which means that in Christ, we belong to God. We are his. And nothing can take anything away from God. We belong to him. That's our hope, says Paul. And remember, that's not something he just wants to get in our heads. It's something he wants us to know in our hearts, to feel. And so again, as you pray for yourself and and you pray for each other this week, well, pray that these things wouldn't just change the way we think, but change what we feel, change what we desire, change what we do. Paul prays that we would know God better. He prays that we would know the hope God gives. And finally, he prays we know we would know the power God provides. Last week, we began by thinking about how we all have plans 
uh, we all make plans all of the time. But the big problem with our plans is that they don't always work out, either because we don't have the ability to, uh, to carry them out or, or because something bigger and stronger comes in and just wipes them away, something like coronavirus. Our plans are not guaranteed. And sometimes we might be tempted to think that the same is true for God's plans. That all this stuff Paul has been saying in his letters so far all sounds wonderful, but, but how can we be so sure? How can we know that God hasn't bitten off more than he can chew, promising more than he can deliver? We might have those sorts of questions. And actually, I imagine the Ephesians, who were the original readers of, God, of Paul's letter, might have had similar questions. You see, they lived in a society with some pretty powerful, pretty anti-God enemies. Firstly, there was Rome, a mighty empire with mighty armies and, and a powerful leader. A powerful leader that, that wanted people to worship him as a god. And then there were the pagan cults of the day. Ephesus, you might know, was the home of the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so idol worship was big business. You might have read about it in Acts 19 and 20 uh, in life groups. Idol worship was big business, which meant that uh, these temples, well, they held a lot of power in society. Uh, but more than that, the Ephesians were also aware that behind these pretend pagan gods were very real, very evil spiritual powers. Devils and demons, things that we don't talk about so much today, but that the Ephesians were all too aware of. And so you can see how easy it would have been for them to think, well, how can we be sure? Easy to doubt whether God really could carry out his plans or whether these other things were too powerful. Uh, but just look at what Paul prays for the next in verse 19. Verse 19, he prays that they would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Again, Paul prays that the Ephesians' eyes would be opened to see reality. To see the reality that even the mightiest empire, even the darkest spiritual forces are absolutely nothing in, com nothing in comparison to God's mighty power. God's power is incomparable, says Paul. It's incomparable because it's the power over life and death. End of verse 19, he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. In Christ, God has shown that he has power that no one else has. He has power over life and death. A power to bring someone from death to life. And Paul's point is, well, if he did it once, he can do it again. Christ's resurrection guarantees that not even death is powerful enough to stop God's plans. God's power is over life and death and it's over rulers and authorities. Verse 20 says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, 
not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. God's power not only raised Christ to dead, but seated him far above every other power, every other power in all of creation, every earthly rival or threat, every spiritual enemy or force, all of them have been placed under the feet of King Jesus. He's above them all. He has power over all things, says Paul. And the astonishing thing that we see from these verses is that all that power, all that might is used for the church. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Back In verses 9 and 10 that we looked at last week, we heard Paul describe God's master plan for the world. uh, The plan to bring all things together under Christ. And here he prays that we would know that God has the power to fulfil that plan. That all things are under Christ. That Christ has been raised, he is the head. That we, the church, are his body. And that his enemies are under his feet, defeated. He has the victory over them. God has done all of that in his incomparably great power. And so Paul prays. Paul prays that we would know, that we would see that Christ has been made head over all things for the good of the church. And so as we close We can pray too. We can pray that these things would grip our hearts this week. That as we wake up tomorrow morning and we face another week of lockdown, another week of coronavirus and all the questions and worries that that brings. We would know in our hearts that Jesus is seated above them all. He rules in heaven. And he rules for the good of his people. He rules for your good and for my good, for the good of the church, for the good of those who believe. Let's pray together. Paul will pray later in chapter three that we would know God's power. And I'm going to close with that prayer. I pray that out of, the, out of his glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.